0: Edward Snowden, still in the limelight, but nowhere to be seen. Today, Tuesday, June 25th. This is the world. I'm Carol Hills filling in for Marco Werman. President Putin says NSA leaker Edward Snowden is not technically in Russia because he's still in the transit area at the Moscow airport. But this reporter is skeptical.
1: Uh, The problem is that we've had loads of reporters uh, swarming all around the airport for going on three days now, and nobody has seen him.
0: And later on the program, an eyewitness account of today's brazen Taliban attack in Kabul.
2: We managed to run for another 20 meters or so, surprisingly finding an eight-year-old school student crying, and he was also stuck in this attack on his way to school.
0: Plus, we'll get the details on President Obama's big climate change announcement today.
3: PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org.
0: I'm Carol Hills filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World. Edward Snowden is in Russia, although technically he's not. That's the message from Russian President Vladimir Putin today. Putin confirmed that Snowden, whose leaks revealed the National Security Agency's secret surveillance programs, is in the transit area of Moscow's Sheremetyevo airport, which means he hasn't officially set foot on Russian territory yet. But in any case, Russia is rejecting U.S. demands to extradite Snowden. Miriam Elder is following the Snowden drama in Moscow for London's Guardian newspaper. Miriam, first of all, tell us, what's the latest? Is Snowden still in the transit area?
1: If Putin is to be believed, then Snowden is indeed inside the transit area at the airport. Uh, The problem is that we've had loads of reporters uh, swarming all around the airport for going on three days now and no one has seen him. There have been no photographs. There's been no video. There's plenty of press inside Russia that has a very good relationship, to put it lightly, with uh, the security services. Uh, The media is quite uh, state-controlled, and uh, we still have no evidence that he's actually ever been here. So he's hiding away somewhere or being hidden somewhere.
0: So the transit area, if I get this correctly, that's the area you arrive in an airport, you're transferring to a different flight, and so you don't have to go through security again, so you're sort of in these designated areas that allow you to catch your next flight. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, uh, there's all different kinds of transit areas. There's these VIP lounges, and Sheremetova, just like most airports, is massive. So there's all these kind of doors. You don't understand where they go, and these tunnels. So, I mean, he could be anywhere. And there's been such a increased security presence there at times that uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he were being hidden away somewhere.
0: And Russia saying that Snowden has not crossed into Russian territory. Is this technically correct?
1: As far as I understand it, yes. I was speaking with some people yesterday from the state airline Aeroflot. They, you know, were joking around how, hey, we're not technically in Russia right now, we're on international territory. So I do understand that to be the case.
0: So I I read, it was actually in your coverage, that a person traveling through a transit area in Moscow is normally allowed to stay just 24 hours. It's been longer than that for Snowden. So is Russia technically harboring a fugitive?
1: Well, I don't know if he's harboring, if they're harboring a fugitive, but they're certainly facilitating his time here. I can't think of many cases where a citizen would be allowed to sort of wander the halls of, of this airport for as long as they wanted. And Putin has stayed quiet. The Russians in general have stayed quiet for so long while there's been so much speculation. So if anything, I think the Russians are guilty of at least obfuscating the situation. Let's put it that way.
0: Now, the Russians are refusing to extradite Snowden to the U.S., And Russian President Vladimir Putin says there is no extradition treaty, but he hopes the affair will not affect U.S.-Russian relations. And Secretary of State John Kerry sort of said the same thing. He wants this to blow over too, but he urged the Russians to turn over Snowden. Do you think this will affect U.S.-Russian relations?
1: Uh, Russian-U.S. relations are so bad right now. They really haven't been this bad since the end of the Cold War. There are disagreements over Syria There are some disagreements over human rights in Russia. There are disagreements over everything, missile defense. You name it, there are disagreements right now. This sort of thing um, has even become expected.
0: Miriam Elder is in Moscow. She's been covering the Snowden drama for London's Guardian newspaper. Thanks, Miriam. Thank you. The Edward Snowden story is big, and so are many others that we report on daily on this program. But arguably the biggest story, the most far-reaching one that we're covering here at the world, is climate change. And right now we're talking and hearing a lot about climate change as part of our What's for Lunch series on climate and food. The two are deeply linked, as we've been hearing in several recent stories. Two big ideas I want to communicate today how the food system contributes to climate change.
4: And I looked and how- into
5: a lot of information about food's impact on the environment. I didn't know. We'd be
1: anything. very happy if this really opens up desert areas to a new kind of agriculture
5: and energy. Maybe little, little seeds here, here and there, and will eventually be everywhere.
0: Well, today, President Obama jumped back into the conversation on climate change in a big way talking not about food, but about energy. The president announced his long-awaited plan to cut greenhouse gas pollution in the U.S. by 17 percent by 2020. He was speaking to students at Georgetown University in
6: Washington. I refuse to condemn your generation and future generations to a planet that's beyond fixing. And that's why today I'm announcing a new national climate action plan, and I'm here to enlist your generation's help in keeping the United States of America a leader, a global leader, in the fight against climate change.
0: The part of the plan that's likely to make the biggest waves here in the U.S. is his move to regulate carbon emissions from existing power plants. That means potentially big cuts in the use of coal. He also promised to set new energy efficiency standards for trucks, buildings, and appliances. And he vowed to work more closely with other countries on cutting their emissions. We're already hearing a lot today about the big political battles ahead for Obama's plan here in the U.S., but it's likely to get a much warmer re- reception outside the country. Joanna Lewis teaches science, technology, and international affairs at Georgetown, and she's a member of the U.N.'s Intergovernmental P- Panel on Climate Change.
4: Today's announcement is going to be very important internationally. The entire world uh, was, was listening today, and I think that this is going to really help to push the international negotiations forward. Uh, China and the United States are, of course, the largest emitters of greenhouse gases. And we've already seen some real concrete action from China in recent months uh, with the launch of several new pilot carbon dioxide trading programs. um, And China's working towards implementing a national carbon dioxide emissions trading program. So I think that The world has been waiting for an announcement from the United States to see how they were going to move forward in reducing their own emissions and meet the target that they've already pledged internationally of of reducing total national emissions, 17 percent from a 2005 benchmark by the year 2020.
0: Of course, China doesn't really have to have much domestic debate when it makes decisions, the government there. Um, For the sake of argument, looking around at the world at other major industrialized powers, big carbon emitters... How would the U.S. compare, if everything happened according to Obama's plan, where would the U.S. sit in terms of its carbon emissions compared to other major economies?
4: Well the US is still by far the largest uh developed country uh, industrialized country emitter of carbon dioxide in the world. So even if it meets its climate targets it's still going to be a very large emitter. But I think that that's exactly why the US needs to play this leadership role. I think you know one of the main reasons the international negotiations has really uh lagged in in recent years is because many had hoped to see much more aggressive action from the United States once President Obama entered the White House back in 2009. And this is really the first high-profile announcement we've heard from the president on climate change. And so I think this really sets the the mood and really puts climate change back on the agenda for the, the second term. And, and the timing is really good for the international process, because the world is currently working to come up with a, a new international climate agreement to follow on the Kyoto Protocol by 2015. So, Time is of the essence, and and they're really working with a a rapid timetable.
0: A big part of the emphasis in Obama's speech today is on coal, either significantly reducing its use or requiring that it be burned more cleanly. Coal use is already falling dramatically here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, it's growing gangbusters, places like China, India, even parts of Europe. Since coal is a huge culprit in the climate problem, how much will Obama's plan really help change coal emissions on a global scale?
4: Well, even with the real um, resurgence of, of natural gas use we've seen in, in the United States in the last couple of years, we've actually seen a, a relatively new increase in the use of coal plants uh, for the first time in several years. And so I think it's going to be extremely important that the new power plant regulations start to curb the, the growth of new coal plants in the United States, we really have a lot of opportunity to continue to use natural gas as well as to promote the use of much more renewable energy than we are. And while, of course, countries like China and India are going to continue to build coal plants, even in those countries, uh, they're trying to diversify away from coal. Uh, China, in fact, has implemented a cap on national coal consumption that they're trying to, to implement in the next uh, five years.
0: Will Obama's plan have any impact whatsoever on the growth of the use of coal globally?
4: Um, I think it's hard to say. I think that if the United States can signal to the rest of the world that it's going to move away from using coal for electricity, that this will uh, send a, a very strong message even to the emerging economies about the continued use of coal in their power system.
0: Joanna Lewis is a member of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And climate change is the focus of a solar-powered electric catamaran that's now docked in Boston Harbor. The world's Andrea Crossan went to check it out today. From a distance, you could
7: mistake it for a party cruise boat. But unlike a booze cruiser, the MS Turinor's top deck doesn't have a dance floor. Instead, it's covered in massive black panels. The Turinor is the world's largest solar-powered vessel. The catamaran was built in 2010 to demonstrate the power of renewable energy. The name Turinor comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It means power of the sun. It's captained by Gérard D'Aboville.
8: It's difficult with the solar boat. Uh, The more north you go, (laughs) the more difficult it is.
7: D'Aboville explains that the boat has 10 tons of rechargeable batteries— It can run at night and on cloudy days and has a power reserve of 72 hours.
8: Here in summer, it's perfect. Uh, You can see the sun we have now and how our batteries are fully charged.
7: In May 2012, the Turinor became the first solar electric vehicle to circumnavigate the globe. During the expedition, it broke two records, the fastest crossing of the Atlantic Ocean by solar boat and the longest distance ever covered by a solar electric vehicle. Now it's a floating science lab, Climate scientists from the University of Geneva are aboard the boat to measure the effects of global warming on microscopic organisms. They're following the Gulf Stream. Captain Dabbeville takes me on a tour of the $15 million vessel. uh,
8: We are now in what we call the marina, at the half part of the boat, under the solar panels. Now we go up to the solar deck...
7: It's a scorcher of a day here in Boston, and when we climb up to the deck, the heat hits like a hammer.
8: So here we are in the middle of a a field of solar panels. You don't see them all because on both sides there are some solar panels which are sliding, and when we are at sea, we open it and we double the surface. We are in the middle of 512 square meters of solar panels.
7: From Boston, the Turinor will continue on its journey to follow the Gulf Stream. The boat is carbon neutral, so the scientists are hoping to collect data that aren't distorted by pollutants that come from a regular boat. For Captain Gérard d'Abeville, he'll chart a course that will take the vessel on the sunniest route. He says being on the open sea on the Turinor is easier than mooring a boat that's shaped like a small aircraft carrier.
8: Yes, it's a bit difficult to manoeuvre in some, not here because we had plenty of foam, but. Uh, When we went in uh, New York, in a tiny little arbor like a mouse hole, it was a bit difficult to enter and to escape.
7: D'Abbeville says solar-powered boats aren't going to replace gas-powered boats anytime soon. He says the Touranour is more of an ambassador to show what solar power can do. For
0: The World, I'm Andrea Crossan in Boston. You've got to see what the MS Turinor looks like in Boston Harbor with all its solar panels extended. We've got some great pictures at theworld.org. And while you're there, take a second to explore our summer-long series, What's for Lunch? We've been looking at how global environmental pressures are affecting what we eat. We've been asking for your help, too. Is climate change influencing what you choose to eat? Send us a picture of your environmentally friendly dish on Instagram and include the hashtag, What's for Lunch? That's what's the number four, lunch. You're listening to The World on PRI.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org.
0: I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. The Taliban today staged a brazen attack in the heart of Afghanistan's capital. Not what you'd expect from a group that just a few days ago announced its intention to take part in peace talks. Taliban gunmen broke through several layers of security and stormed the presidential palace in Kabul. A firefight broke out, leaving eight of the gunmen and three government guards dead. The BBC's Bilal Soare was among a group of journalists who were approaching the palace gates when the attack began.
2: Suddenly, we heard gunfire followed by huge sounds of explosions 10 to 15 meters away from where we were. We managed to run for another 20 meters or so, surprisingly, finding an eight year old school student crying, and he was also stuck in this attack on his way to school. For the next 40 minutes or so, we uh, saw presidential guards returning fire, personnel from the Ariana Hotel uh, also returned fire, uh, American personnel as well as the Afghans there. That has been the home of the CIA for the last 12 years.
0: There have been other Taliban attacks in central Kabul, but Soari says this one was war- more worrisome than the others.
2: And Usually it's a security success, but an intelligence failure. Uh, By that, I mean that security forces are very quick in in reacting to these attacks. But today's attack is different. Uh, This is uh, the area of the presidential palace. President Karzai lives and works 700 meters away, and there are special forces patrolling that area, specifically in place to prevent uh, attacks and to provide security. After all, this is the palace where world leaders and Uh, Western leaders in particular have been visiting the president for the last uh, decade or so.
0: That was the BBC's Bilal Sawari, who was near the presidential palace in Kabul during today's Taliban attack. Davud Maradian directs the Afghan Institute for Strategic Studies. He served as a foreign affairs advisor to President Karzai from 2006 to 2011. Maradian says many Afghans feel that their government has been cut out of the current peace process. And he himself thinks that in pursuing peace talks with the Taliban, Washington is favoring the interests of Pakistan rather than those of the government in Kabul
9: most uh, conversation has been taking place between Washington and Islamabad in the absence of the Afghan government. Uh, and uh, right now in Kabul, you would find very few people who would trust Washington's in handling the peace process because uh, many people in Kabul feel that uh, there is a kind of a behind deal between Washington and Islamabad at the expense of Afghan sovereignty and Afghan independence.
0: Let's move to the subject of President Hamad Karzai. There's very mixed feelings about him and his ability to negotiate peace with the Taliban right now. I mean, do you think he's up to the task?
9: Karzai administration is exhausted. It has been in power for over 10 years, and it does not have uh, any more political and uh, institutional energy to dedicate to peace force. Therefore, many in Afghanistan are calling for a new president, which we will have next year. And the next president would have a stronger mandate for peace process in Afghanistan. So please don't rush. Wait another 10 months or so. Then there would be a new administration in Kabul. Not a lame duck, not an exhausted administration that now Kabul government represents.
0: I'm just curious. You work side by side with... President Karzai, for many years. There's some in the U.S. who think he's sort of erratic and uh, not reliable. What would you say to that?
9: On the bigger picture, he has been extremely consistent, uh, unlike uh, his American counterparts. But that consistency, that clarity has not been forthcoming from Washington. George Bush has a different approach towards Afghanistan. President Obama has changed his mind almost every three months, years. Karzai and Washington have been reinforcing each other's bad behavior.
0: Davoud Moradian directs the Afghan Institute for Strategic Studies. He served as a foreign affairs advisor to President Karzai from 2006 to 2011. Davoud Maradian, thank you very much. Thank you. Time for a great underdog story. There was a huge upset at Wimbledon tennis tournament yesterday. One of the globe's best players, Spain's Rafael Nadal, was beaten by a player ranked 135th in the world. The world's Clark Boyd asks the question on all our minds.
10: Who the heck is Steve Darsus? No, seriously, I'm watching Wimbledon yesterday and I can't believe my eyes. Some guy the announcers call Steve Darsus is beating Rafael Nadal, the great Rafa, and in straight sets. Steve Darsus... Has two match points. Yeah.
8: He only That's needs one.
10: It. And then I'm watching Darsus in the news conference just after the match. And there's this gem. Nobody was expecting um, I went today, I think. That's an understatement, Mr. Darsus. So the first thing today, I get a hold of Chris Dennis. He's courtside at Wimbledon for the BBC World Service. Chris, I ask, Steve Darsus? A relatively little-known Belgian, Steve Darcy. And we've been told reliably by the man himself today that actually... The the surname is pronounced Darcy. So I'm assuming that all the uh, uh, assembled journalists there are are having a crash course in who is Steve Darcy and and what can we find out about him? (laughs) Yes, they are. Uh, We've been doing some digging today. And uh, he's 29. He's from the French-speaking part of Belgium, uh, Liège, which is a small, very quaint town. Ah, Liège. That's where Charlemagne may or may not have been born. Also, Liege has really good waffles, and I'm talking by Belgian waffle standards. I know, I lived in Belgium for a couple of years. And now, well, Liege has got Steve Darcy, the giant killer. Okay, Darcy's win has hardly vaulted him onto the same Belgian tennis pedestal as, say, Justine Henin or Kim Kleisters. But it's fair to say Belgian sports radio enjoyed reading out the headlines from the British sports pages today.
5: The Shock of the Century, that vind ik zo. Maar, oh, maar, the Nowhere Man, want zo vind ik hier ook.
10: Nowhere Man may be a bit unfair. Darcy has been on the tour for a while now. He has two wins, although he's never progressed beyond the first few rounds of any major tournament. Here's Darcy on Belgian radio today, answering that old sports journalist post-match chestnut. How do you feel? (laughs) I'm doing great, Darcy said. Got to bed a little bit late. And then comes the follow-up question. You had a little
7: beer?
10: Yeah, of course. After a day like that, you need a beer. Spoken like a true Belgian. Well, while folks back home celebrated, Darcy himself was enjoying the Wimbledon limelight. The BBC's Chris Dennis says he saw a famous BBC TV anchor, Sue Barker, interviewing Darcy on the stadium roof. And there was a massive crowd assembled craning their necks. Everybody was saying, oh my word, that's Sue Barker, but who on earth is she interviewing? And then there was a ripple went around the crowd saying... Oh, my goodness, it's that chap. What's his name? Oh, then, then all of a sudden somebody who knew their tennis would say, Well, it's Steve Darcy, of course, the guy that beat Nadal yesterday. And then the whisper went round the crowd, and before we knew it, everybody was muttering the words, Steve Darcy. Next up for Mr. Darcy, Lucas Kublot of Poland. I emailed a tennis-loving Belgian friend of mine to see if she's excited about Darcy's next match. The win against Nadal was the most beautiful victory of his career, my friend wrote back. Don't expect to hear from him again, though. For The World, this is Clark Boyd.
0: This is The World on PRI. I'm Carol Hills. So you think you know what origami is all about? Well, think again.
6: The field keeps growing and expanding. Complexity and realism going to new heights, new directions for constructions, abstract mathematical and everything in between.
0: We get the scoop from an origami master ahead on the World.
5: PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic. Now accepting nominations for the Buckan Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a twenty thousand dollar grant at liveongiveon.org.
0: I'm Carol Hills filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. More than a half million of the farm workers who pick our food are women. Most of them are undocumented immigrants that makes those women vulnerable to exploitation and powerless to turn to the law for protection. Our partner program, PBS Frontline, conducted a year-long investigation focusing on the sexual abuse suffered by female farm workers. The result is a documentary that airs tonight on PBS called Rape in the Fields. Lowell Bergman is the project's investigative reporter. He told me about one of the women whose cases he follows in the film.
11: Olivia Tumayo was a longtime employee of Harris Farms, which is if you ever drive in California on Highway Five on your way from or to Los Angeles, you'll pass Harris Farms. It's got big feedlots, gigantic almond groves that cross the valley, and a restaurant that a lot of people stop at. And Olivia had worked there from the late 1970s. She got some documentation in 1986 during the so-called amnesty, and ran into a supervisor there who simply asked her to get into his truck, and before she knew it, she was being assaulted and raped. And then this went on a number of times, and he continued to harass her over a period of years, telling her things like, you're mine. In the rape incidents, uh, she would later testify that he threatened her with a gun and with a knife, and she was in absolute fear of her family finding out, of losing her job, of uh, the humiliation of the situation. She didn't know what to do. In the late 1990s, she became aware that there were sexual harassment laws, and when she got into a physical fight with this person, she decided that she was going to complain. And from there, she eventually winds up with the, an, usually a, a very obscure agency that you don't know much about called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you may see their posters at wherever you work. And they are the one agency that deals with the issue of sexual harassment in the agricultural industry.
0: What happened to her when she took her case to court?
11: Well, most of these cases, I should point out, when they are brought are settled. The case is against the employer. This is a civil suit. It's not criminal. The employer has to provide a safe place to work. And that's the issue. And was there sexual harassment there? The companies usually settle. In this case, Harris refused to settle, and so it had to go to trial. She went to trial. She testified. So did the alleged perpetrator, and she won and got a million-dollar verdict, and it shook the agribusiness community in California, if not the whole nation, that a farm worker woman could win against a large employer.
0: Have there been any criminal prosecutions?
11: What we found was that in none of the cases we looked at, one exception in Madeira County slightly, but in none of the cases was there ever a follow-up from the civil litigation to a criminal prosecution or even investigation.
0: Why is that?
11: First of all, the Justice Department says that two-thirds of all rapes, for instance, are never reported in this country. Now we're talking about the whole panoply of the population. The next reality of it is, is that they're very difficult cases to make. If you don't have DNA in a criminal case involving rape, your odds of getting a conviction are 7 out of 100. If you do, it's 70%. And very few of these cases out in the fields, A, get reported right away, and B, involve any forensic evidence. But on top of that, where it has been brought to the attention of local law enforcement and documented by local law enforcement, nothing happens.
0: These women, they have the courage to go public with the sexual harassment or sexual violence that they've endured. But the perpetrator is never held accountable, nor is the company. It's grim. It just feels like it's, it's 40 years ago in the U.S. where you're sort of blaming the victim.
11: There is some impact from these EEOC lawsuits. I don't think any major reputable corporation wants to see that it, or, or advertise that it's been a place where sexual violence takes place. There are only three states in the country, California, Maine, and Connecticut, that by law require employers to train their supervisors and foremen in sexual harassment and have them in turn inform their workers. So in a situation where people don't necessarily speak English, come from a country where they may not think that the authorities are honest, where they fear with some reality here in the U.S. if they're undocumented that they're going to be deported... I don't think it's hard to understand why people would be reluctant to come forward.
0: I was struck at the names the women used for the fields where they worked. They were referring to them as fields of panties and green motel, which suggested to me that it's incredibly commonplace. What is the scale of the problem?
11: Industry and the U.S. government sources in the Department of Labor and elsewhere all agree that no one knows how big this problem is. There isn't any comprehensive survey that's ever been done anywhere. Okay? So we're not talking about a a situation where people are counted or anyone cares about what's happening to them. So you can't really say from a data point of view what's going on. Anecdotally, this is very prevalent. Any of the smaller surveys that have been done show that almost everyone that they talk to reports that they have knowledge of this going on. It was, to me, a revelation in the sense that we talk about the immigration problem or we talk about the fact that we have 11 million undocumented people. But do you really think about what it's like to be undocumented in this country? And you're a woman and you're going to work in an isolated place. And everyone knows that a lot of women are in the fields these days and in, let's say, at night in office buildings. What does happen to them and who could they complain to? And would you, if you were one of them? And would you risk your job? Would you be able to live with yourself?
0: Lowell Bergman is an investigative reporter for PBS Frontline. His latest documentary, Rape in the Fields, airs tonight. It was produced in partnership with Univision, the Center for Investigative Reporting, and the Investigative Reporting Program at UC Berkeley. Under current immigration law, there are a number of factors that can help foreign nationals come to this country legally. Perhaps they have a relative already living here or they might possess a specialized job skill. But participants in the so-called green card lottery don't need any of that. They just need to be from a country with few recent immigrants living in the U.S. and a little luck. Each year, 50,000 people are picked at random out of millions of applicants and granted legal resident visas through this lottery. But the immigration bill that's making its way through the Senate would put an end to it. And that's sparked some anger, as the world's Jason Margolis found out.
12: The Diversity Visa Program, or Green Card Lottery, was created in 1990. It's a little-known program originally designed to settle more Irish in the United States. Over the past two decades, the complexion of lottery winners has become noticeably darker, though. About half of today's visa winners come from Africa. Dominic Tamman came to New York from Cameroon in 1997. January 18, 1997. That's when I arrived here. I remember because it was so cold outside. I've never experienced that cold weather before. Tamman is now a math teacher and entrepreneur in Newark, New Jersey. And he's active in the movement to save the green card lottery.
2: It's something that is dear
12: to my heart. You know, I didn't really, I don't know how to uh, put this because I'm so passionate about it. So not, he decided to express his passion than through music. music. He recently produced this song sung by the artist Major Money.
13: That the only reason we escaped poverty Why? was because of the green card lottery. For the sake of this country, my people stick their necks out. There's no way they deserve to be left out. Doctors, nurses, teachers who walk in here on diversity visas. So this message is for all our leaders.
12: This argument, though, isn't convincing most leaders in Congress. Many Democrats have quietly turned their backs on the diversity visa, giving it up as a bargaining chip. Republicans are more outspoken against it, like Congressman Bob Goodlatte from Virginia. His office turned down an interview request, but here he is speaking against the diversity visa on the House floor last year.
8: It's unfair to people from more than a dozen countries around the world that stand in long lines on waiting lists and then watch somebody have their name drawn out of a computer at random with no particular job skills, no ties to this country, and they get to go right past them into uh, a green card in the United States.
12: Mark Krikorian agrees with that. He runs the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, which supports limiting immigration. Krikorian says the green card lottery is ripe for fraud and that terrorists could steal a winning lottery number and enter the U.S. illegally. Plus, he says, immigration policy should not be based on national origin.
6: And so what... Black caucus seems to be saying is somehow that's unjust because uh, they want more people who look like them in the immigration flow. And what I'd like to know is how is that different from someone saying, well, I want more white people immigrating to the United States?
12: It's exactly the same thing come on now, let's look at, you know, uh, the population of the nation. Democrat Yvette Clark represents Brooklyn in the House of Representatives and is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. She says there needs to be a dedicated flow for African and Afro-Caribbean immigrants. We want to be sure that
14: uh, this nation is not one that doesn't continue to welcome people of African descent um, and that it is comparable to what we do for others coming from around the world.
12: It's not comparable right now, argues Sylvie Bello, the CEO of the Cameroon American Council in Washington. Bello says the immigration bill includes programs designed to benefit Asians, Latinos and European immigration, but there's nothing specifically for Africans.
7: You're taking us back to the Jim Crow era when we could only come to this country through special programs. Yes, some of us will qualify for the STEM visa you know but it was not created with us in mind yes some of us will qualify for the dream act but it was not made with us in mind yes some of us may qualify for for the agriculture visa but it wasn't made with us in mind the only visa type that has a high proportion of africans that come through is the diversity visa
12: bello says she hopes president barack obama will speak about immigration on his visit to africa this week and that he remembers a time not long ago when very few africans made it to america Africans like Obama's own father. He came here on a student visa. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis.
0: Go online for more of our Global Nation reporting on stories of a changing America and its people. That includes a recent feature on a film about seven Indians in America on a quest to find the best dosa in New York. That's all at theworld.org slash global nation. Motema is a South African journalist living in New York. And she's been spending a lot of time online checking on the condition of South Africa's former president, Nelson Mandela. He's
5: 94, and he's now in the hospital for the fourth time since December. Every time Nelson Mandela goes back to hospital, I cannot help but worry his time has come. For us South Africans, Mandela is not just our former president. He's a beloved grandfather, a protector, and a symbol of what's best about our country. We name everything after him. The Mandela Bridge, the Mandela University, the Mandela Children's Fund, the Mandela Soccer Cup. I mean, the man's face is even on our money. My mother tells me to feel grateful to have grown up in a free South Africa. I was 10 when Mandela became president. Before then, my mother had to travel with her passport everywhere she went. The police would stop her when she went to places reserved for white people. She went to blacks-only schools, blacks-only restaurants, and did hard labor a blacks-only kind of a job. I didn't go through any of that. I went to a multiracial school. I can go to any part of my country with no restrictions. Blacks and whites live side by side in harmony, or at least so it seems on paper. Sadly, almost 20 years on, South Africa remains divided. Racism might have left the restaurants, but it's alive at the dining room table. Behind closed doors, blacks say, white people have such a sense of entitlement. They forget that this is our land and we could kick them out anytime. And I've heard white people say, black people are such savages. Their government is corrupt. And I'm thinking of moving away. And then there's the economic inequality. Wealth still remains in the hands of the white minority and a small black elite while the rest of the country is poor. Resentment bubbles under the surface and violence threatens to explode. Many fear. That once Mandela is gone, his rainbow coalition will fall apart. Whites against blacks, rich against poor. And what scares me is that these days we do not have the kind of leaders that can hold the country together. Mandela may not be with us for much longer. And I would hate if something happened to him while I'm so far from home. I want to be able to hold hands with my countrymen when his time comes. But then again... I think Mandela would want me to be here in New York, taking advantage of the opportunities he spent his life fighting for. So I'll keep checking the news wires, texting my friends, calling my mom, desperate for the news I hope will never come. Peng Motema just completed her master's at Columbia Journalism School.
0: Her essay was first heard on Columbia's Uptown Radio. The art of origami is front and center for today's GeoQuiz. Japanese artists were the first to come up with the idea of neatly folding paper into the shapes of cranes and other animals. Nowadays, origami artists all over the world are doing landscapes, spaceships, the sky's the limit really. That's if you have some time on your hands.
6: I may spend hours or even days developing an intricate design, working out the positions of all the folds and how those folds interact, and then again taking hours to days to actually fold the object up.
0: So if you have a little time help us locate the newest international origami museum. When it opens later this year, it will be Europe's first. It's host cities in northern Spain and was once the capital of the kingdom of Aragon. Today, the city boasts a third millennium bridge that spans the Ebro River. Can you name the city? The answer is coming right up. This is PRI. I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. Europe's first museum dedicated to origami will open later this year. It will be in the northern Spanish city of Zaragoza, which is the answer to our geo-quiz today. It's a sign that origami is increasingly considered a serious art around the globe. So says Robert Lang, an origami master living in California. And Robert, you've been huddling these past few days at an origami conference with origami artists from all over the world. What's the buzz in origami?
6: The buzz in origami is that the field keeps growing and expanding. Complexity and realism going to new heights, new directions for constructions, things that are not just representational, like traditional, but abstract, mathematical, and everything in between.
0: Tell us about the kind of things you're actually seeing, the shapes or ideas that are being expressed that are are new to
6: you. Some of the things that we're seeing, incredibly intricate geometric shapes in the genre of modular origami made from multiple sheets that are folded into units locked together. A couple of the really innovative young folders today come from Vietnam. Nguyen Hung Quang has a spectacular scorpion. Tron Trung-Hu has a micro-raptor, a dinosaur uh, with feathers, and you can actually see the feathers in the folded object. Another pretty groundbreaking area of origami is a field called origami tessellations, repeating patterns. And we had fantastic tessellations here by one of our special guests from Germany, Ralph Conrad. Uh, These are folds where you take a single sheet of paper and fold it, Creating a very intricate tiling or almost quilted pattern, and these are some of the most beautiful origami objects around.
0: I saw the piece that you have in a, an exhibit that's traveling around the U.S. called Bull Moose. Tell us about that piece and how you came up with that idea.
6: The Bull Moose is—it's part of an idea that I've had for a long time of wanting to do cervids, horned animals, and and to do yeah. them recognizably, so you could tell that whether it was a deer or a moose or an elk. And to design that particular moose, I used a, a technique called box pleating that actually has its roots back in the 1960s in Swiss and American origami artists' work. It is a technique for getting very complex arrangements of points, which is what you need if you're going to create antlers, and creating those arrangements in a pretty systematic way.
0: I'm curious, I know you've been on the forefront of sort of bringing the Western and Eastern aspects of of origami together. What is the result when you bring them together?
6: Yeah, 20, 30 years ago, there was a, a Western emphasis on very complex technical shapes. And the traditional Japanese origami, there was a very strong emphasis on the line and form a more intuitive artistic approach. But I, and as well my Japanese colleagues, have tried to integrate those two ideas to to use very complex design, but still pay tribute to and, and capture the suggestive nature of origami.
0: Robert, we wondered if you could fold something for us, create a simple origami that our listeners can kind of watch online at theworld.org.
6: Sure. To make this pretty quick, I'm going to fold an existing design, and it is a flapping bird. So we fold the paper in half from corner to corner, and that that gives us the diagonals of the square. We pinch it and pivot it, and that turns the square into a little triangle that has four flaps, two of them for wings, one for head and tail. We fold one of the wings up, and now it even starts to look like a bird. The head is a long flap, so we do what in origami is called a reverse fold, a second reverse fold. Puts a head and a beak on the bird, and then we have a bird. And if we hold this bird's head and pull its tail, it flaps.
0: Wow, this may be a first. Origami on the radio. Robert Lang, thank you so much for speaking with us.
6: It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Finally today, new music from a legendary South African artist. And here to tell us about it is guest DJ Manasseh Piri from Joy FM in Lusaka, Zambia.
14: Today I want to share with you the music of uh, a man I admire and love very much, Hugh Masekela, and he seems to have always been around. And when you think you've heard everything that Hugh can do, he always comes up with a brand new album, and he's done just that. And this one is called playing at work and he says about it that we love so much what we do that it is no longer work it is play and the tune that I'm going to start with is called Rek pate <laughs> Rek a tune that Huma Sakela first recorded way back in 1970, I think it was, with the band Hedjole Sounds from Ghana, giving a totally new life on the album playing at work. Here's another song that Hugh Masekela wrote in the 70s and was first recorded by his ex-wife, Miriam Makeba. It was a song that talked about the Soweto student uprisings of 1976. Soweto Blues. Hugh Masakella from the album Playing at Work. Now, I grew up in music and in life in the 60s and 70s, and I heard Hugh Masakella way back in 1969 with the hit Grazing in the Grass when I was listening to Bob Dylan. And I never thought then or even recently that Hugh Masakella could ever play Dylan. And here he is on the album Playing at Work. It's all over now, Baby Blue. It's all over now, baby blue, human as a killer. And I wonder what Mr. Bob Dylan would think of that His own old song in a township jazz version
13: i what you need You think we're
14: I'm Manasseh Piri, and I'll see you again.
13: But whatever you wish to keep You better grab it fast
0: And it's all over now for our program, at least for today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Carol Hills. Thanks for listening.
13: Crying like a fire
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for environmental reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.